providing real solutions for real business challenges. Welcome to FNF Unplugged, Season 4. Conversations with professionals across the country, exploring business topics and empowering personal growth in real estate, financial services, and the title insurance industry. Well, thanks again for joining us here in another episode of FNF Unplugged. And really happy to have with us here today, a return guest, Andy Walden. Andy is the Vice President for Enterprise Research Strategy at Black Knight, Inc. And uh, Andy has been joining us now, I guess it's maybe the third time that Andy has joined us, but uh, always look forward to this because Andy can tell us in real time what's going on and what seems to be going on in the residential mortgage market. So Andy, thanks again for joining us here today. You bet, I appreciate you having me, excited. Let's just dive into things. With rates remaining relatively high, mortgage applications down, home affordability is uh, suffering, and we're seeing a low inventory of homes for sale. Are we already seeing a summer housing market that on a national basis is DOA? Yeah, I mean, when you look at it in terms of sales volume, I think that's that's certainly the case, right? When you look at sales transactions, they pulled back in April. Our rate lock data on purchased loans is telling us they're going to remain low here, at least in the near term. So certainly on a transaction basis, it's not the not the volumes I think that folks were kind of hoping for this summer. But when you look at it on a home price basis, just in terms of the trends going on now out there. Putting everything else aside, home price growth actually looks relatively normal this spring. If you look at our April home price index, month over month, April was up about 0.46%. The third year average for April is about 0.48%. So all things else considered, and again, kind of looking at prices in a vacuum, very, very normal, kind of abnormally, uh, just given where affordability and inventory is. But certainly in terms of transaction volumes, we're still treading water here this spring. Well, you know, we'd sort of like to hear other news, but uh, as John Adams said, facts are damned hard things, aren't they? (laughs) Um, So let's circle back on affordability. And uh, in your Mortgage Monitor webinar last week, and I will encourage, again, as I have in previous uh, installments, any of our listeners, if you're not subscribing to be part of the monthly Mortgage Monitor, you're really making a mistake because uh, it really does tell you where things are and where things are going. Again, in your Mortgage Monitor webinar last week, you quoted the percentage of median income needed to make P&I payments on the median priced home at 34.2%. What does that mean? Can you put that into context for our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. We use, again, as you mentioned, a very simple calculation, looking at an average buyer out there in the market, an average earner buying an average home using the average rate, You know, what share of their income would they need to allocate to making that home purchase just in terms of those monthly principal and interest payments? And so when you look at that, we can do it both nationally and we can do it at a geographic level. We can look all the way back into the 1970s to kind of compare where we are today versus historical levels. And as you mentioned, kind of the middle of May, we were right around 34.2%. If you look at it over the last week or so, it's been even worse than that. It's closer to 36% just given where interest rates have been. And if you subtract income out of the equation and just look at mortgage payments, we're the worst we've ever been just in terms of the simple monthly principal and interest payment required to buy the average home over the last couple of weeks. So affordability is still very, very tight. When you look at it in historic context, where that kind of 34 to 36% range ranks, it is worse than we were at the peak of the market in June 2006 from an affordability standpoint. And among the lowest that we've seen 
in 37 years, dating all the way back to when the Volcker era was kind of pressing on rates, not overly dissimilar to what we're doing today, to kind of slow down inflation and slow down the housing market back then as well. So we're talking multiple decades since we saw affordability at the levels we're seeing today. Well, and I go back to those Volcker years. The first closing I did was a VA loan at 16.5%, and the seller had to pay four points to get it. So <laughs> I hear you in regard to what that was like. But, you know, while there are many places uh, where affordability is off the charts, but that's not the case everywhere, is it? And where are some of those areas still showing relatively affordable homes? And I, I take it Los Angeles is not. <laughs> yeah, I'll come back to Los Angeles here in a bit. But I mean, when you technically speaking, when you look across the country, every major market is less affordable than its long run averages. Right. So unaffordability everywhere. But you're seeing very, very different degrees of affordability or unaffordability. If you look at areas like Ohio and, and specifically Cleveland, it's just a tick above long run averages, right? So right about average levels of affordability in Cleveland is compared to other parts of the country, the most affordable market in the U.S. And you have other areas in, in the region, Cincinnati's one as well. Uh, so you're hearing more and more talk about Ohio housing than, than most folks typically do or typically want to, but it's because of that low affordability that's pushing some price gains there this spring. And then when you look at areas of the Northeast, Hartford, Connecticut is one that jumps off the page regardless of the metric that you're looking at. Affordability is certainly among the most affordable markets. It's got the largest inventory deficit. You're seeing some of the strongest levels of home price growth there as well as that pressure puts prices on the market. And so there certainly are some kind of in the Midwest and Northeast that are more affordable than most out there in the market. And then you've got areas like Los Angeles that, that you mentioned earlier that is on the absolute opposite end of the spectrum. Right? And we know that the West Coast and California is, is less affordable than the Midwest. And there's some value in comparing across different markets. But even when you compare Los Angeles to its own long run average, right? Traditionally in, in LA, it takes about 35, 36% of, of the local median income to afford the local median home, right? You've got to be frugal, but the median earner historically has been able to afford the, the median home in Los Angeles. That's no longer the case today, right? It, it takes 65% of the median income in LA to now afford the median home. You can't qualify for a mortgage at that level, right? So we're seeing extreme unaffordability out there in the West Coast. And LA is not the only market, right? San Francisco, San Jose, uh, San Diego, not quite as bad, but similar positions. Miami's certainly being stretched from an affordability standpoint right now as well. So certainly a wide array of, of affordability constraints that we're seeing across the country. Well, say 65%, that doesn't leave a lot of money left for things like food. Exactly. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that's, that is a shocking number. In our podcast uh, last autumn, you thought that, and again, based off the data you were looking at, that would be February of this year before home prices really stopped appreciating nationally and April before we'd see some reduction. And it appears that you're pretty spot on, uh, that, you know, very, very impressive. But, you know, is the inventory shortage affecting home price trends differently today? Yeah, it absolutely is, right? When you look at that 0% number, I think it's important for listeners to note that's a year-over-year -year change, right? We're looking at where prices were a year ago versus where they are today. And it probably is, is more impactful for folks to look at kind of those seasonally adjusted month-over-month -month changes because there have been kind of a downswing late last year and more of an upswing early this year. There have been kind of two cycles in between there, which makes it a little bit easier to predict where those annual price growth rates are going. But again, if you look at where we are in April, prices are, are firming up this spring. And it's absolutely because of that inventory equation that you've talked about, right? Inventory has fallen in eight of the last nine months. 
we now have less than half of the level of, of inventory that we should have out there nationally. And that's really the reason that you're seeing prices firm up. I mentioned earlier, affordability is still a challenge, marginally better than it was late last year, but we're still roughly equivalent to those levels of affordability. You're still seeing demand down. The difference this spring is that supply is falling and is outstripping the, the lows that you're seeing out there in demand. And it's just simply causing prices to firm up here this spring. Well, on Mortgage Monitor, did I hear right that the average down payment for a house nationally at this point for a conforming loan is about $100,000? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, for, for conforming loans, right? So those that meet the requirements of, of the GSEs to purchase those loans, over $100,000 is the average down payment. When you pull in all loans, you pull in some of those lower down payment products, it's a little over $80,000 for the average down payment. And just kind of for some historical context, heading into the pandemic, right? So early 2020, that was about $50,000. So we're paying about 60% more for a down payment, about $30,000 more for a down payment than we were roughly three years ago. And it's it's really due to a number of different factors, right? Rising home prices, certainly one of them, but we're also seeing some tightening credit out there, some lower initial LTVs than you traditionally do and shifting borrower profiles that are impacting that as well. And along those same credit tightening criteria or profiles, you're also seeing the highest average credit score of purchases that we've seen historically, dating back more than 23 years out there in the market. So you're certainly seeing kind of credit tighten up and and a shift in the dynamic out there across the board in terms of who's buying, how much they're putting down and what their credit scores are. And to that point, that tightening of credit availability generally is, well, it's both real, obviously, and it's discussed a lot in the papers. Could you go more into detail about what some of the reasons are for that current credit tightening in the residential mortgage market? Yeah. And really the short answer is that it's uncertainty and potential risk on the horizon. And certainly some of the banking challenges, specifically regional banking challenges that we've seen over the last couple of months, uh, aren't helping that matter at all. But as you and I both know, the Fed currently putting pressure on interest rates, putting pressure on the labor market, concerns about what that means for unemployment rates and the ability to, for borrowers to pay back those mortgages. And so you're certainly seeing that uh, that credit uh, tightening out there in the market to a, to a meaningful degree at this point. Shifting gears a little bit, but it is sort of just the other side of this coin. You reported last week in the mortgage monitor that 30-day delinquency had gone up significantly in April. Was that a sign of bad things to come or was that something more seasonal or perhaps both? <laughs> I think kind of both, right? When you look at April specifically, April was really calendar driven, right? In an average year, April sees the largest monthly gains or the monthly increases in delinquency rates. So you saw part of that playing out. The other thing that's kind of unusual that we saw in April is that the month ended on a Sunday. And that sounds like a weird thing. Why why does that matter in terms of uh, mortgage delinquency rates? Well, what happens is there's a small percentage of borrowers that try to sneak their mortgage payment into the last calendar day every month, right? They miss their payment due date on the first day of the month. They miss their late payment due date around the middle of the month but they try to sneak their mortgage payment in on the last calendar day of the month so that they don't roll to 30 days delinquent on their credit report and they don't get dinged. But what they don't realize is that when the month ends on a Sunday, those payments aren't processed on the last day of the month. And so they end up rolling over to the next day, which is the first, they roll 30 days delinquent. And so in the roughly 39 examples of that that we've seen over the last 23 years, you see some meaningful jumps in delinquency rates in those situations as well. So looking at April in both of those slides, the fact that it's April, the fact that it ended on a Sunday, April was actually very, very normal in, in that context, right? So that's not really what drove the the April increase. But when you kind of step back and look at delinquency rates overall, I think there are two things to note. One is the month prior in March, we hit an all-time low in terms of mortgage delinquency rates. National delinquency rate on 
on first lien mortgages fell below 3% for the first time on record. So we're coming off very, very low delinquency rates, right? And that may be the low point in this cycle in terms of overall delinquency rates. And then when you look at broader risks out there in the market, there are a few popping up, right? And they're, they're really jumping out in the FHA space and some of those lower income spaces out there in the market. You're seeing early payment defaults rise. You're seeing them rise among more recent originations as well. And then you look at what's going on with the Fed, as we discussed earlier, and, and the pressure that they're putting on the labor and uh, labor market and, and some of the expected impacts on unemployment. So all in delinquencies still remain very low. Serious delinquencies as of right now still remain very low as well. Near-term foreclosure risk still remains relatively low. But I think it's it's fair to you know expect those to gradually rise as we move into the, the tail end of 2023 and 2024. And I know that at Black Knight, uh, you do a tremendous amount of research in regard to climate-related events. And you know, recording this at the very beginning of what experts are saying, maybe another historic hurricane season. And after both State Farm and Allstate have said that they will cease writing insurance policies in California, and a lot of the major insurers have uh, left Florida already, is this part of a larger problem with insurers, P&C insurers backing away? are dramatically increasing premiums in more and more states that are facing climate risk? It is, right? And you're hearing more and more of those conversations pop up. We were talking about it earlier. We had internal conversations about it this morning. It is a bigger and bigger issue and a bigger and bigger conversation that's taking place out there in the market. And it's certainly expected to impact not only current homeowners looking for policies, but those prospective buyers that we were talking about earlier in in the already constrained affordability environment out there. This just simply makes that worse for those folks as well. And there's also some recent research that shows migratory pressure into those areas, right? Into areas with hurricane risk, into areas with drought and wildfire risk as well. So this is going to be a bigger and bigger topic of conversations. At Black Knight, we have been, we're in some exploratory work on creating a, a hazard insurance database to start to pull down you know, what are premiums? What are coverage rates? What's the cost of these policies? How has that shifted over time? And so we'd love to come on as that's fleshed out and have additional conversations there as well. And we're acutely focused on climate change and, and long-term impacts there as well. And have been doing a lot of work on pulling down climate-specific data, not only on on hurricanes, but as I mentioned, on floods, wildfires, drought, uh, earthquakes, and, and on down the line to really identify and quantify the, the risk in those areas. So it's a problem being able to afford to get a mortgage. And then you may not be able to afford to buy the homeowner's insurance. That's definitely got to be impacting the industry, right? Absolutely. Right. And, and again, it's going to continue to impact the industry as well. And as, again, not just folks that are shopping for a home now, it's existing homeowners. It's existing homeowners in Florida, existing homeowners in California, some of the biggest states out there, some of the largest volume states in terms of overall mortgages, and, and even areas like Louisiana and, and places that are more flood prone, um, certainly impacting homeowners in those areas as well. So you're talking about uh, P&G insurance and, and you mentioned Louisiana and glad you did because I'm at NS3 in uh, St. Louis, sponsored by October Research. And one of the Louisiana regulators is here and he was talking about title insurance, but he said, you know, title insurance right now, we're not so worried about because uh, P&C costs uh, for the average homeowner in Louisiana have gone two to three times what they were uh, a year ago. Uh, and they're trying to solve those problems. I mean, that really can start to affect uh, delinquency and default, can't it, in the long run? 
Yeah, I mean, price as well, right? If you get to a point where homeowners can't afford insurance or can't get insurance policies at some point, that affects their ability to own, that affects others' ability to own and buy those properties, and affects prices as well. So a lot of downstream issues that can have when you start to get into either extremely expensive insurance or just simply inability to get insurance in general. Well, and that doesn't even take consideration the increases in flood insurance, right? I mean, places right. like Louisiana, Florida, all the coastal places, they have their exactly. problems too. Yep, exactly. And you mentioned the Midwest. Flood insurance in the Midwest is exciting too for, I can see the Mississippi River out of my hotel room where <laughs> I am. So it's low right now. There's the good news. But, there you go. but this has been so helpful and, again, always so spot on about uh, issues uh, in the industry. So, you know, putting you on the spot a little bit, sort of, you know, crystal ball time, given the trends that uh, you're seeing, are there any thoughts of what the residential mortgage market might look like, say, into the fourth quarter? And and what would most heavily impact some of those trends that uh, you're seeing currently? Maybe we start with the drivers and then where they take us. I mean, it's really the key drivers that we've seen over the last two to three years that are going to continue to drive the market. It's just a, a question of where are those markers moving here over the next one, two, three quarters in, in next few years. I mean, it's really interest rates, it's affordability, it's the inventory dynamic and homeowners willingness to sell their existing homes, which we haven't seen here. I mean, it, uh, broadly across the entire pandemic, but even more acutely here in 2023. And then again, it's really rates, right? It's where are rates going to be? And we're we're in this really interesting market overall where there's there's double-sided risk, right? If you see interest rates remain high. And for whatever reason you saw inventory begin to build at today's affordability levels, we saw what happens late last year, right? You start to see prices come down, you start to see price softening out there in the market. So there is that that price weakness. And when you look at affordability levels out there in the market, it tells you that home prices are roughly 25% above what underlying incomes would support at today's interest rates, right? And so you're seeing some folks kind of lean into that and say, hey, there, there's potential price weakness on the horizon or at least a, a need for prices to to kind of flatten and for incomes to outpace home price growth for an extended period of time for us to catch up. And then you look at the other end of the spectrum here and what happens if interest rates fall and inventory levels don't follow it. Well, affordability returns relatively quickly, demand returns, inventory doesn't, and you've got the risk of, of reheating the housing market out there as well. And we were starting to see some spots of that early this spring, especially in the Midwest and Northeastern part of the country. There's a few markets where if you annualize what we saw here in April, you're talking double digit home price growth again in, in some of these markets, right? So this, this double-sided risk out there, and really that's maybe the more clear path, right? If you look at the probabilities of where things could go and the likelihood and, and kind of a viewpoint of what the most likely outcomes are. I mean, I think it's relatively easy to see interest rates moving lower, affordability improving and, and it outstripping supply again. The inventory equation isn't as easy to solve, right? In terms of overall price decline. So that's kind of our expectations here. I mean, maybe some reheating as we move through the tail end of this year, but still a lot of uncertainty about where rates are going, right? And, and you mentioned you're in St. Louis. There was always this saying about Midwestern weather. And if you don't like it, wait 30 minutes. That's kind of what the, the rate forecast this spring <laughs> feel like as, as well. When you start to look at the Fed outlook, it's shifted at least five times so far this year in terms of will they go higher? Will they hold longer? Will they come down earlier? Right. Every week we get new news in and those prognostications are changing. And it's really going to be, again, that rate drivers is the key one, both in terms of what we see in terms of origination volume this year, purchase lending, refinance lending, but the housing market as well. Rates are really going to dictate that path. 
Well, and you know what you're saying, we had uh, Dave Stevens on a couple of months ago on the podcast. And, you know, Dave used to run MBA and he was the federal housing commissioner. He's been involved in realty. He's been, he was at Freddie, but he said he just exactly what you just said, this uncertain rate market. And then we had this inventory problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those two things, that's what's going to decide what happens. And each of them could go the wrong way. One can go the right way and one the wrong way, or they could both go the right way. It's exactly right. And when you look at the forecast out there in the market, you're seeing a lot of spray and forecast. And that's exactly right. Everybody's trying to model exactly what's going to happen with inventory, exactly what's going to happen with rates. And if you tweak those two variables, you could see very different outcomes over the next 6, 12, 18 months. And so a lot of what you're seeing in in forecast variation is just different assumptions that are put in in terms of what's going to happen with rates and what's going to happen with inventory out there in the market. Andy, thank you so much again for joining us here today. It's uh, always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, And again, uh, for our listeners, Mortgage Monitor is just a great, great resource. Comes out monthly at the end of the month, generally for the previous month's data, but it is real time. And Andy and his co-host, they really do a great job of uh, walking through the marketplace and they answer questions too. They will take questions on Mortgage Monitor. So again, encourage everyone to uh, join Andy on those monthly events. But Andy, look forward to talking with you again, hopefully in the autumn when we've got some more good news to talk about. (laughs) There we go. Yeah. I appreciate you having me on and look forward to talking again soon. Great. Thank you very much again, Andy. And thanks to everyone for listening uh, here for another installment of FNF Unplugged. And hope you have a great and prosperous day. If you have questions, comments, or would like us to feature a specific topic, email fnfeducation at fnf.com. Thanks for downloading FNF Unplugged, a presentation of the FNF family of companies. All rights reserved. This podcast is being provided for informational purposes only. The podcast is not a comprehensive overview of the subject and is not intended to provide legal or financial advice or any endorsement of any product or business. The views expressed by podcast guests are their own and their appearance on the podcast does not imply any endorsement of them or any entity they represent, including Fidelity National Financial or its directors. Please seek legal or financial advice before taking any action on the matters or products discussed in this podcast.